the preaching of God's Word is 1 Peter chapter 5, and there at verse 7, as we think together and hear from God concerning the believer being unburdened. Notice that Peter is giving a particular follow-up or follow-through of an exhortation as he's calling unto submission. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And the way that this works, of course, is the casting is from the posture of humbling. So in other words, there is no humility, truly, without the casting. And there's no possibility for this casting that Peter presents without this humbling. So the primary exhortation is to humble yourselves. And yet, one manifestation of that and particularized reality is the casting of our care upon him. And of course, this makes sense even conceptually that if we're brought low and humble ourselves, we're necessarily saying, I'm insufficient. I can't handle it myself. I need help. And so when we're brought low, we're then brought to bring our burdens unto the God who is great. Well, you'll notice that the context of the whole epistle is a context addressing a suffering people. So you can go back to the very beginning of this epistle, 1 Peter 1, and you'll notice how Peter greets these strangers scattered throughout verse 1. He addresses them as those, verse 6, who greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. They are a people surrounded by and weighed heavily by the various afflictions that are upon them. And Peter is opening to them uh, their true hope. And try as we might, you can find not even a whisper of prosperity doctrine here. And so the age that we live in has many false teachers who would say, when you're tried, have faith and things will get better. Peter doesn't present that. He doesn't say, you know, long for better houses and you pray for them, you'll get them. Long for better health, pray for it, you'll get it. Long for peace, you'll pray it, you'll get it. Rather, he says, this is pretty much the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian is one in this world that is characterized by cross-bearing. And of course, that mentality shouldn't be new to us because one greater than Peter said it as well. When he said, if you be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And who was with him when he said that? But Peter. And Peter had, of course, much to learn in his own life. It was Peter who said to the Lord Jesus Christ that he would never forsake him. And yet what we found was Peter was quite bold in himself and had failed to humble himself and instead was trusting in himself. But in the Lord's grace, Peter learned much and now stands as one who walked in a lowly frame and with much faith. And so the whole of this epistle is in many ways related to the same. You'll notice in chapter 4, verse 1, that Peter says, reminding them, as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, follows with an exhortation, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. And so as Christ suffered, you need likewise to have the same mind as you face 
your own trials and suffering. Back to our own chapter, you'll notice as well that Peter testifies to this very thing before us. And he comes and he says, here's what you're to do. Well, elders, as he starts, you're to feed the flock of God. You're to labor diligently to instruct and nourish them by the word. And yet in such a way as that you're not standing over them with this ironclad fist of power, but rather, as he says, that you're doing so of a ready mind, being examples to the flock. And then he switches the attention from officers to elder, others, and he says that they are to submit themselves unto the elder, verse 5, and then he addresses everyone, all of you be subject to one another and be clothed with humility. And so this exhortation that we're about to consider comes out of Peter's exhorting of the church in their proper relating to one another. But he then draws all the way through to the grand call when he says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Now in context, as we've seen, much of this has to do with coming under the Lord's rod of affliction. Humble yourselves beneath it. Bring yourselves low beneath it. It's similar to Job when he's brought to confess, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And so it is again and again. But what we wish to focus on is verse 7, casting all your care upon him. Now this, as we've noted in the reading, is a particular outworking of what it means to humble yourself. If one humbles himself, he will be one who casts his burden on the Lord. The word cast gives us an action. It's literally casting upon. Those are two words in our English that are one in the Greek. And so the idea is to throw. The root word can sometimes be used of one who is sowing seed, casting it, throwing it. But here the word is a compound of sorts. It's cast upon, throw upon. And what is it that is to be cast upon one? It is, notice, all your care. The word care, though in the English is the same as he careth, it's yet different in the Greek. And this word care, all of your care, speaks of that which um, distresses us. And so some translations will translate it anxiety, which is fine. Um, it represents the idea, but the word itself comes from a word that has to do with dividing. And the notion is that which divides your mind from what it should be focused on. And so that which distresses us and causes us to be overwhelmed, it's that which is meant by this first word in the English care. And so what are we to cast upon God? We're to cast everything that would distress us, everything that would overwhelm us, which by the way, at the very least, implies that there will be things that overwhelm us. And Peter says, listen, as you do this, he points out in the text that you have a great encouragement to do so because he careth for you. It's a different word in the Greek and it has the notion of one who has an interest in another. And so you see this word appear, for instance, when the disciples say to Christ, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you have any intimate connection with us? Don't you have any 
concern about us that we perish. Or you think of Martha when she was troubled with much uh, serving. She, in many ways, reproved Christ and said to him, Lord, dost thou not care? I'm serving, my sister's not. Don't you have any concern about me? And so this notion is, whereas we can be overwhelmed with those burdens which distress us and create all sorts of anxiety, we're to remember that God has an interest in us and is earnestly and sincerely willing to care for us in that way. So what are we to do? We're to gather up everything that distresses us. And Peter uses the language of we're to cast it upon him. Many have used this example before of how to throw something. And if you throw something truly, it comes out of your hand. And so if you hold on to something, you'll see this at times in Major League Baseball where the pitcher winds up and then unbeknownst to him, the umpire says, you know, we're calling a timeout essentially, and he's already into his throw and he holds on to it. Um, But they're actually taught to release it because to hold on to it uh, torques the arm and can injure the shoulder. Many times Christians are like that, trying to throw something but unwilling to totally let it go and would hold on to it themselves. Peter's saying, listen, you're to release it unto the Lord. You're to present it to him and entrust it to him. So this is Peter's point. The believer, with all of his trials, afflictions, with all of his distresses and anxieties, is to entrust every last one. Notice, casting all your care upon him. He's to entrust all of his concerns to the Lord who cares for him. So consider then three things this evening. Firstly, the Christian's burdens. Secondly, the Christian's action. And thirdly, the Christian's comfort. So firstly, then the Christian's burdens. Now as to the matter or substance of them, what are these things which burden the Christian? The beauty of the text is it is not specific. It doesn't come and say this type of care, this type of burden, but rather is universally applicable, casting all your care upon him. So as to the matter of them, They are diverse and varied. In fact, they are as universal as trials come. Whatever trial comes and distresses, and this is where people play psychological games on themselves. They're actually burdened, but they say, well, this is a little thing. And so I'm just going to buck up and deal with it and carry on. But that's not pious. That's actually ignoring the counsel of God's word. Others say, well, others can handle that. I should be able to handle it, so I'll just carry on and not make much about it. But Peter's quite pastorally wise, and of course this is the case not only because of his experience and insight, but because he's writing by inspiration of the Spirit. God knows this. Whereas we tend to ignore and neglect and redefine things, Peter, by the guidance of the Spirit, is saying everything that distresses your soul, everything that gives the inkling, the hint, the whisper of anxiety and distress is included here. Now, this word that is here translated care, your care, is a word that meets us on other occasions. So you remember the 
parable of the four soils. And Christ speaks of that seed which finds soil and springs up, but then is suffocated. And it's speaking of the cares of the world. And so elsewhere he speaks of uh, food and drink and clothing. Uh, In other contexts, family and friends, these things that uh, would distress us. And so the point is, it's not so much about a specific thing as a thing that causes us concern. And so this is opening for us. It helps us to think through. And actually the Lord, as it were, clears the way so that we don't have to do the psychological gymnastics of trying to determine, is this something that uh, should be bothering me? Well, in some ways we should say nothing should be bothering us. But the fact of our finitude, of our limits, and of the reality of a real sinful and miserable world, as well as our own remaining weakness, means that there are things that bother us. And yet there's another way of saying that everything should bother us. How is that possible? Well, not everything regarding, of course, God's goodness, but everything of a sin-cursed world should trouble us. Christ had no sin, and yet he was troubled. He didn't put on a stage act. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't modeling something he didn't really feel. He was sincerely concerned and brought to be troubled over the brokenness and the effects of sin. But he always perfectly brought it immediately to his father. And so was never, as it were, fretting about as we like to work ourselves up in. Well, with that before us, You can think for a moment about the matter of these burdens when you think about the common things that are warned about. Food, drink, clothing. So Christ says that we're not to take thought for what we will eat or drink or wherewithal we shall be clothed. That taking of thought is a similar expression to this care. We shouldn't care in that sense. Anxiety, concern, distress because we have a Father in heaven who knows what we have need of. So what are we to do? We're to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. But instead of that being an automatic switch off, what Christ is helping us see is when we're tempted to be concerned about that, we're to turn that into prayer and call upon God who will provide. And that's fundamentally what Peter's getting at. So we can say the burdens that face the Christian can come to us by food, do we have enough? drink? Do we have enough? Clothing? Will we have enough? Housing? Will we have enough? It can come through the temptations of if I stand for Christ, I'll lose my friends. If I stand for Christ, I'll lose my job. And others, if I stand for Christ, I'll lose my house. I'll lose my liberty. That's the kind of things that were falling upon the Christians of this generation. They had things that far outweigh the current things that face us in our context. They could be hauled off for inquisition, for beatings, and even for death. And this was the fiery trial which had come upon them. Verse 12 of the previous chapter. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. This is a constant word throughout this epistle. Suffering, suffer, sufferings. It's coming again and again and again at them. And Peter's counsel to them is to look to Christ and look to heaven. 
And so in other words, the things that were burdens were the things that were temporally focused. If I follow Christ, I could lose everything that this world has to offer. What's the effect of these burdens? It's that it tempts them and tempts us to divide our allegiance. And isn't this what happens? You know, if a family member goes astray, we're instantly put into this predicament. If I'm going to be faithful, I could lose that relationship. Like it may be entirely gone for the rest of this life. Or if my boss is asking me to do something sinful, violate the Sabbath day, lie, you know, cover up some things. If I fail to do that, I could lose my job, my necessary income to provide for my family and so on. Our friends come to us and whether explicitly or implicitly, they're challenging us and calling us to live at least in some compromised fashion like they do. And we realize if I withstand that, and if I dare speak against that, it's quite likely that not only would I lose their friendship, but I might now be the target of their mockery. And you see, this is the effect of every type of burden. It's seeking in its effect, as it were, to divide our loyalty. Will we stand fast for Christ without compromise? Or will we blend in and necessarily compromise? So the effect of these cares, if indeed they are embraced and govern us, is they divide our allegiance between the things of this world, food, clothing, water, friends, family, comfort, and the things of Christ, His supremacy, His honor, His glory, and so on. And these are things, mind you, that Christians face. The world has its trials, there's no doubt, but it's the Christian particularly that has this kind of trial. It's the Christian in isolation that knows what it is to have loyalty Tested, Because the fiery trial comes and it's asking a simple question. Are you really committed to Christ? The language of fiery trial, verse 12 of the previous chapter, can't help but make us think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their faith brought them to a literal trial by fire. And so the furnace is heated up and they're seeing it done. And yet they will not recant. They will not back off. They will stand entirely for God. And they would rather be thrown into the fire than deny and compromise their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in history beyond the scriptures. And if you'll know the story of Thomas Cranmer, one of the great ministers in the Church of England. And when it was that he was challenged to recant his faith, he did. He signed his recantation. And that in the midst of many others being martyred and cruelly treated, and he, for a moment of weakness, uh, became complicit and compromised. But then later he, as it were, recanted his recantation. And so it was he's led to the stake. And as he is, he thrusts his hand first into the flames as the instrument which would dare sign his allegiance against Christ. But in the end, of course, 
the Lord giving him grace sustained him, that he endured the flame, sealing his testimony with his blood. What's the point in all of this? Though you and I may never face the fires of literal, tortuous martyrdom, every burden is leading to that end. It's testing us. Is Christ first and foremost, or is he simply on even standing with your earthly desires? These are the burdens. They're heavy. And though we might mock them and say, what is it? It's so little and insignificant. Yet experientially, they weigh us down. Faces of family come to mind. Faces of bosses, friends, finances come to mind. Hungry children come to mind. All of these things come to mind. What are we to do? Well, the text tells us. Secondly, the Christian's action. Casting all your care upon him. We have to say a few things about this that should be fairly obvious, but can escape our attention. If we're to cast all our care upon him, it necessarily demands that we identify the burden. We have to know what we're casting. We don't just come to God and say, if I'm thinking of anything that's burdening me, I bring it to you. That's equivalent to the person who comes to someone and says, if I've offended you, would you please forgive me? If I've said something that upset you, would you forgive me? I didn't mean anything, but if. And really what it is is a cowardly way out. Well, the Christian can behave this way with reference to his or her burdens. And they're unwilling actually to isolate and identify the reality, the degree, and even magnitude of what's troubling their souls. And they think in terms like, well, I shouldn't be troubled, so I'm not going to pretend like I am troubled, or I'm going to really do my best to overcome that trouble and so on. But in order for us to cast our care upon him, we must know what our care is that we're casting, which all of a sudden becomes difficult. People say, well, how do you cast your care upon him? And really, it is to start with this step. We have to come to terms with the burdens as they are in us. We don't hide behind the, well, I shouldn't. We don't hide behind the, well, God is sovereign. We don't hide behind all of these things. We come to terms with what is weighing upon us. Whether it's small and insignificant, whether we shouldn't be struggling with it, whether others don't struggle with it, whatever it is, Peter's saying, If it has caused you this burden, if it's breathing into you this anxiety, that's what I'm talking about. So someone looks at others who go through extreme privations and without, it seems, a care in the world. And yet another who's looking upon that says, I am afraid of losing my well-paying job, even though I'd be qualified to get other jobs. And this is causing me anxiety. Peter would say, that's what I'm talking about. That's an anxiety. Don't cover it up. Don't hide it. That's what you need to identify. Others say, you know, I'm concerned about my grandchildren, my children, my spouse, my parents, and I'm actually uh, quite burdened that if I follow the Lord, I might lose intimacy with them. I might lose my parents' love and appreciation. Perhaps even I might lose their inheritance. 
others, if I stand faithful, my husband might turn from me, my wife might turn against me, the cold shoulder might begin, and all intimacy is cut off, and all the sweetness of the marital relationship. Parents think to themselves, if I stand for Christ in my home, my children, my own offspring might turn from me. And these are real concerns, but we have to understand them before we can cast them. We have to identify, and the point is, there's no one-size-fits-all. Everyone will be troubled by different things. Nuances of one type of thing will be different for each one. So what do we have to do in order to fling it, to cast it? We have to do the hard work of the self-evaluation of our hearts. That's difficult. It is far easier to say, I shouldn't be troubled by it. I'm not going to worry about it. It's far easier to say, well, I know there's a promise there and I'm just going to sort of think that that's going to be good for me. We have to do the work of saying, what is it that makes me start to become wound up? What is it that starts to make me feel out of control? What is it that makes me anxious? Not just, am I anxious? But what is it that makes me anxious? It's a relationship. But we have to say, what about that relationship? It's finances. But what about those finances? What is really motivating the anxiety and the care? Because as we start to peel back the layers, we'll actually discover the root source of the care and the anxiety. And when we get to that, think of how much more specific it is then that we can say, Lord, this is what I'm casting upon you. All of its tentacles, all of its roots, everything else that's attached to it. I'm bringing this to you and I'm saying, oh God, would you care for me in this? Provide me grace to overcome. Provide me support in the midst of this trial. But to do that, we first have to identify. Some think it's proper to ignore the burden. Others consume themselves with them. Both of them are equally sinful. What is required is that we do the hard and gracious work in the light of God's word and say, what is it that's stirring me up? What is it that's overwhelming me? And you see, even as we're saying that, some are thinking that's too much to ask because I'll discover dark, deep motives that are very difficult for me to process. I'll entertain scary thoughts. I'll entertain difficult scenarios. Well, brethren, we'll get to this in a moment, but just look ahead because it says, for he careth for you. What he's getting at is you don't have to go through this alone. It's not some isolated individualistic exercise, though individually done. It's in the full assurance that the God of heaven and earth, who's made heaven and earth and all things in them is a God who is intimately, lovingly disposed toward you. The action, of course, moves from identifying to entrusting this burden unto God. It sounds silly, doesn't it? That we would ever consciously have to go to God and say, I entrust this to you. I'm handing this over to you. And perhaps it's the very silliness of it that makes us even feel a fool to have to admit and take that to the Lord and hand it over. But it is an exercise of faith. Someone would come and with all their cleverness say, well, it's not yours anyway. And it's true, it's not. But it's astounding, isn't it? 
how we can hold on to those things and seek to bear these burdens. Whereas really what God is saying is this burden that I'm bringing to you, you're to humble yourself under my hand and trust me that I'll bear you and it. We're entrusting these things to him. Of course, this will be through prayer. But what is prayer? Prayer is an exercise of faith. It is an acknowledging of the thing that troubles us and an owning of that before the Lord saying, Lord, this which troubles me, which unsettles me, which if I look at long enough, I lose my breath. My heart starts to race. My mind gets 5,000 steps ahead reality. And I start to worry about all of these X's and O's on the playboard. I'm coming to you and I'm saying, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. But I am doing this. I confess that as out of line. But I come to you and I say, Lord, it's so out of my control. I couldn't control it anyway but I'm consciously coming and submitting myself to you saying, you control it. You undertake to override it, to direct it, to guide it, and me in it. It's a pleading of his promises. God, you have promised that the one who loses husband or wife or son or daughter or mother or mother-in-law, however it is, that I will in this life receive many more. And in the life to come, glory forever. These are promises you've given. And so I'm trusting that you'll provide them for me. You've promised, O God, that all things will work together for the good of those that love you who are the called according to your purpose. And I come in faith and I ask, though I cannot see it, that you would give me the help to trust you that were the worst to come as I can imagine it, yet the worst will but precede the good that will indeed endure. And so it is an activity of the soul whereby we humble ourselves beneath the burden and we trust the Lord to direct all things to his glory. We cry out to him and we ask him to handle all for us. To do so and actually, as it were, to take our hands off doesn't mean that experientially it's one and done. Some would say, well, I prayed about that, so I don't, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. And praise God, if that's the case for some, it's rarely the reality and experience. The idea is that so often as the care comes, we're casting it. So often as it comes, we're casting it. Imagine this for a moment. There's the children's game of hot potato, of course. And as soon as it comes, you get it out of your hands. How much more if the matter was a stick of dynamite? Who would hold on to that for anything more than a split second? As soon as it came in, you'd fling. In fact, as soon as it came, you'd bat it away. This is the notion of concerns that Peter's speaking about. So soon as it comes onto us, it's astounding how many times our tendency is to sort of paralyze ourselves with all sorts of worrying about all of the particular outcomes. And we're thinking, well, if I can hold on to it long enough, I'll be able to figure out how to manage it all. But God's saying, you're a fool. Cast it to me and say to me, God, I trust you to direct me. I entrust all of my circumstances. If I lose my job, if I lose my spouse, if I lose my children, if I lose my income, if I lose my house, if I lose whatever there is to lose. 
if my comforts are lost, if my health is lost, if my pleasure is lost, I'm coming under it every single time to trust in you. You read the life of the martyrs and there are some who are given, it seems, an extreme windfall of grace that it's as if they're floating above the trials. But the majority of them are plagued with these doubts and perplexities again and again and again and again. What's the secret, as it were, to overcoming? It's so soon as those things come, they're frequent in casting it back to God. That's faith. If God gives us the one, this ability to soar above all of the trials, praise be to his name. But if he withholds that, which is more regularly the case, praise be to his name when he gives us faith to fling it back to him every single time it causes the least disturbance in our soul. Well, then thirdly, what's the Christian's comfort? Explicit in the text is this. It's the Lord's loving interest in his people. He careth for you. In one sense, what Peter is getting at is this. He's the one that manages everything. He's the one that has the interest. So parents, you'll get this. Your children might be struck, you know, what's our financial status and how are we going to make ends meet and how are we going to get food and so on. And they express it, you know, do we have enough money? What do mom and dad say? They say, we'll handle that. We'll take care. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry one night's sleep about it. Just trust us. We're the ones working through the finances We'll handle it, right? That's what parents say. Why is that? It's because they shelter and care for their children. God is doing that for his children. And so his children can get worked up about this and that eventuality and this and that circumstance and this potentiality and that potentiality. But what's being said is, we're to take that to God and say, God, I know that you have this. I'm borrowing trouble where I don't need to borrow it. And so I'm bringing it back to you and I'm saying, Lord, I trust you to care for my home. I trust you to care for my health. I trust you to care for my job. And the trust includes the afflictions. I trust that the affliction is from a caring God who has a good purpose. I trust that the loss of my job comes from a caring God who has a purpose. I trust that the loss of my child, the loss of my spouse, I trust the loss of my brother or sister in the Lord. I am trusting you for all now that comes because of it, because I know you care for me. You see, this is in no way, it's in no shape, it's in no form, this prosperity doctrine of care. He cares for us, so you know you'll get a good house. He cares for us, so you know you'll get a good job. He cares for us, so you know you'll get a good bill, uh, or, or rather wealth, and so on. Instead, it is we trust in him that even when he takes away, he's caring for us. He knows how to care for us by removing. He knows how to care for us by afflicting. He knows how to care for us in every detail of all that transpires. That's only possible as we humble ourselves. But notice the previous text says, under the mighty hand of God. Who is it that cares, lovingly is interested in his people? It is the mighty God. He's worth trusting. 
he's worth coming to every single time saying, I'm worried about this. Perhaps I shouldn't be worried about this. I'm concerned about this. Perhaps I shouldn't be concerned about this. But this I know, you're the God who cares for me. So I come and I ask, express that care. Uphold me in this. And let me know your provision of promised mercy. So that's explicit. He careth for you. But notice implicit is the Lord's faithfulness. The way this is implicit is if you look at the text, it says, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. But you can see in Psalm 55 and verse 22, something similar that is representative of many other passages as well. Psalm 55 and there at verse 22. Here a Psalm of David Notice in verse 1 when he says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. Notice verse 4, My heart is sore pained within me. The terrors of death are fallen upon me. Verse 5, Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. Here's a man of faith, but what's more, here is Christ Jesus. These are his words. Christ was a man who was consumed with the weightiest burdens. He didn't say, I'm the Son of God. I know my Father perfectly. This isn't going to move me at all. He's rather brought to such depth of agony, even before the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, that he is sweating drops of blood. His soul is tormented. But what is he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? My Father, not my will, but thine be done. And what do we see then in verse 22? Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. 1 Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your care upon him. Could be that Peter is borrowing from this. The Greek would imply it. But even if he's not, it reminds us of many such passages. And what's being told to us is, There is a long line of this call from God. When you're overwhelmed, cast it upon the Lord. When you're troubled, bring it to the Lord. When you're filled with sorrow, bring it to God. And it's modeled for us again and again. Hannah prayed, burdened. Her mouth moves, but no voice comes out. She's reproved. And then she displays that she's praying and she's encouraged. And she finds that she then conceives. Again and again, prayers are issued unto heaven. You see, Nehemiah, he hears word of the distresses of his people. He falls down and he's humbling himself. He's fasting and he's burdened. What does he do? He prays. Daniel hears of all these things. What does he do? He prays. Again and again, the pattern is one and the same. The burden comes. It leads in men and women of faith to earnest prayer. And as you search 
the whole of scriptural history, you see again and again the Lord proving himself faithful. One chapter, of course, is full of this. Hebrews chapter 11, as it talks of faith again and again and again. Well, the most distressing of times come. And what's being said is this. Cast your care upon him, for he careth for you. And it could be said, even as he's cared for his people in every generation. The whole of the Bible is full of this proof. Why in the world would anyone seek to manage it of his own wisdom? That wisdom will differ person by person. Some will think it's wisdom to worry about it incessantly. Others will think it's wisdom to ignore it perpetually. But neither of those is heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is to identify it and bring it to the Lord saying, here is the matter and so care for me. So brethren, as we close, it may be that at present you stand tremendously exalted in comfort and encouragement and the passage before you seems a strange thing. If that's the case, may the Lord strengthen you and encourage you and lead you to pray for others who face these things. But if it is that you find yourself burdened, great or small, for some long season or only having begun, here is guidance. You need to acquaint yourself and see clearly what the matter is. What is it that's causing you frustration? What is it that's causing you concern? What is it that's, as it were, rearing up within you this anxiety? Realize that implicit in that is this contesting between trusting God and trying to work it out on your own. You need to acquaint yourself with the concern specifically. Now, sometimes that starts by saying, God, I don't know why I'm so anxious. I don't know why I'm so burdened. Or I know it's about this general thing, but I'm not so sure why that thing is so causing me to be concerned. And so help me to understand it. But even what I don't understand, I would bring and say, Lord, give help. But as we search the matter, as we examine ourselves, as we search the scriptures and seek for light and guidance, then we identify more specifically those things And with specificity, we're able then to bring to the Lord and say, here specifically is what I need your grace, not only to pardon me for my doubts and so on, but I need your grace to support me and strengthen me that I would not compromise in the midst of these things. And so we acquaint ourselves with our concerns, but brethren, as Peter shows, in humbling ourselves and casting our cares upon him, We must acquaint ourselves with our God. Notice Peter doesn't say, cast all your care upon him, except the ones that you shouldn't really be bothered by. You know, just keep those to yourselves and grow up. You know, get mature and put on the happy face. He didn't say that. And fundamentally, God does not say that. God says, if it's a care, bring it to me. I want to know. The door's open. You don't have to knock twice. You don't have to ring the bell and wait for an answer. The door's wide open, throw it on me right away. So as soon as it grips you, come to me. But isn't it the opposite for us many times? It grips us and we sort of want to be gripped by it a bit more. We want to think about it a bit more. We want to think, how can I handle it? Not realizing that the way of our handling is by handing it over to the Lord and saying, Lord, you take care of this. Now, this doesn't mean 
that we aren't diligent about our calling. But it means that our diligence about our calling is not motivated by anxiety. Our diligence about our calling is working itself out in the confidence that God will care for us. So when Christ says, you know, take no thought about what you'll eat or what you'll drink and so on. For God cares for the sparrows. He cares for the flowers of the field and so on. And he'll care for you. What does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There's massive diligence. But the motive is out of a confidence that God will take care of it. So the diligence though it can in some ways look like the same kind of activity that one worried would put forth is entirely different because it's a diligence of assurance. I know God will care for me, come what may. Therefore, I'm going to give myself diligently to the things of his kingdom. As a husband, I'm going to work and labor and care for my wife. And as a father, I'm going to invest in my children. As a member of the church, I'm going to devote myself to the well-being of our brothers and sisters and so on. I'm going to press on. And I don't know what's going to come. Is there war going to come? Is there going to be a financial crisis that comes? All of those things can take my breath away for a moment. But then I bring it to God. I cast it on him. And I put myself right back in the work of seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. That is the blessed fruit of these things. Do you not see it in verse 8 that follows? Be sober, be vigilant. Verse 9, whom resists steadfast in the faith. There's activity that flows from this trusting of the Lord. So brethren, this is ours by grace through Jesus Christ because the God who cares for us has proved that care to us by his own beloved son dying for us and bearing all of the, uh, the worst of affliction that we indeed would have this assurance that this God is our God who cares for us. Would you stand with me for prayer?